Do you ever wish you were a lesbian? Don't you think it would be so much easier? This is Tribeca Film Festival Live from WNYC. I'm James Ramsey. And I'm Rachel Neal. All festival long, WNYC has brought you exclusive coverage of the talks and panels with some of the biggest names in film today. We've heard from Spike Lee, Amy Schumer, and Nate Silver about the projects getting the biggest buzz here at Tribeca. And on this panel, director Brad Bird and the comedian we heard earlier, Reality Bite star Janine Garofalo, who worked with Brad Bird on Pixar's Ratatouille. How many women do you see in this kitchen? Well, I... <laughs> Only me. Uh, Why do you think that is? Well, I... Because hot cuisine is an antiquated hierarchy built upon rules written by stupid old men. Rules designed to make it impossible for women to enter this world. But still I'm here. A cartoon with a message. Yes, and a cartoon with a very smart comedian doing the voiceovers. Brad Bird's one of the most prominent directors of animated films. He was 11 when he started making them. Caught the attention of Disney at 14, and he went on to make The Incredibles, The Iron Giant, and he's even worked on The Simpsons as an animator. Rachel? What? How could you forget Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol? I don't know. An hour ago, a bomb blew up the Kremlin. The president has initiated Ghost Protocol. The entire IMF has been disavowed. So what happens now? Cruise control. <laughs> you know you're a fan. You know what I'm a fan of? What? Brad Bird's upcoming Disney movie Tomorrowland, the sci-fi epic featuring George Clooney and other live actors, which is inspired by Tomorrowland, the section of the Disney theme parks. Got to be by far the best movie ever based off a section of a theme park. I mean, that sounds cool, but I really want to see a movie based on that teacup ride. Uh, yeah, it's called Gosford Park. Whatever. Here's Brad Bird and Janine Garofalo. And welcome. I'd like to try and make this as exciting as an episode of Charlie Rose, if I can. <laughs> A lot going on. Um, Bradley. Janine Lee. May I, Brad Bird? Um, now, I was trying, thinking, I was so honored when they asked me to do this, and I was thinking, what questions can one ask that he hasn't been asked? A lot of times, but then at the same time, there are things you do want to ask. Now I'm wasting time doing this. I shouldn't deconstruct what I was thinking. Let's just get to it. <laughs> For crying out loud. Okay, now, I did want to start with when you toured, uh, I had read about that you had taken a tour as a child, as a young, maybe early teen. You uh, were at Disneyland. Yes. Well, actually, uh, no, it was Disney Studios. Disney Studios, right. And I was 11, so I wasn't quite teen. Oh, right. Well, they, you know, today an 11-year-old that is... He's a tween. Is, is a, approximately like a 27-year-old. Yeah. But back in your day, in my day, it was a young 11. But yeah. that's not important. What uh, <laughs> is is that you were, you were inspired by the animation that you saw at the time, and then you had sent some samples, which then got you a mentor. Yeah, it it uh, it happened a little differently. Um, uh, I had seen Jungle Book and I was completely uh, psyched by it. And it occurred to me that somebody actually made a living figuring out how a, a stuffy panther moved. And I thought, you know, I'd always thought as a kid that um, adults were kind of, you know, you'd go to these parties and there would be the forest of legs and, and just very slow moving and lumbering people that kind of seemed boring. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to grow up to be that. And then, and then I realized um, that there were all these cool jobs. 
and that uh, uh, one of them was that. One of them, you know, I remember my parents had a Jonathan Winters album. And here was this guy, you know, doing all these voices and sound effects, and he had a place in the world. You know, he could make a living. People were enjoying him. And I thought, it doesn't have to be boring. And then when I realized that somebody made these cartoons, that they didn't just happen, that somebody actually thought about this deeply, you know, uh, it seemed like, wow, the, the adult world is very exciting. So uh, I just tried to find anyone that I knew of that would be at Disney. And um, my parents' friends went to school with the composer for the Disney films. So I met him when he was up in Oregon, because he went to Oregon State University. And he said, next time you're in LA, I'll take you through the studio. So that's what happened. He took me through at uh, 11, and I met all the top people in the animation department. And I actually knew who they were at that point, because there was one book that I kind of read to death about the art of animation. And um, I remember meeting Frank and Ollie, who's two of Disney's nine old men. And they kind of gave me this look like, because George Brunn said, uh, who was the composer, said, uh, Brad's you know, interested in animation. They kind of gave me this look that was very nice, but it was this look of like, you're going to lose interest in two weeks, kid, mm -hmm. and we'll never see you again. So they were kind of shocked three years later when I showed up with a 15-minute film. Um, and uh, you know, uh, they responded to it, and that's when they kind of got me started mentoring. So it's who you know, basically your parents, knowing the composer. Huh? This is the moral of that story. What, what, what one well, they... needs is parents that are well-connected, <laughs> and then this happens. <laughs> but what, yeah. one of the things that, that I think everyone would find most interesting about your work is you, you have taken it to an extraordinary level. And it's almost as if you can see the difference between what is when you started and what can be. And mm. within that construct, you've had to actually create ways to do it, because there's limitations to the, sure. to the stories you want to tell and to the way you want to tell it. Like with Ratatouille, there was software issues, as I recall. There were less than on Incredibles, because uh, we had done a lot of groundbreaking on Incredibles. So by the time Ratatouille came around, which is only one film later, um, you know, the tools were way more advanced. So. Mm -hmm. The animation of the humans was a lot easier. That the uh, the technology was more friendly mm -hmm. to um, you know, and I think that you can see it in in the quality. I think I I love Incredibles and and had a blast doing it, but we had to fight the machinery a lot on Incredibles, yeah. and and by Ratatouille the machines were more friendly. So well, there's you know some people who don't I think appreciate that it is an art form. Uh, sometimes when when they think of what you're doing and what people like you are doing, uh, I think they, they think it's a lot easier. They than think it is. that there's a button that's like make movie right? yeah. and it just gets done. Right. And they don't realize that the, the, the computers, they want to do everything exactly. They want to do things cleanly and evenly and hopefully geometrically, not mm -hmm. organic. And if you want to do that, they can do it like no problem. They can spin a cube in space and, and da da da. But if you want them to present anything that, that uh, approximates the natural world, they will fight you every step of the way. And they're less so now. They're, they're getting better all the time. But all those flaws that you see, like in Ratatouille the, on the kitchen floor, each one of those tiles, it is at a slightly different level. Well, somebody had to do that, because the computer wants to do it 
exact, as if everything is perfectly placed. Mm -hmm. And if you want imperfections, you have to tell the computer, I don't want them to match. I want them to be asymmetrical. And that was done from research. When you have actual tiles that have been around for a while in a kitchen, they are not exact. Their levels are slightly different, so light hits them differently. And anyway. No, no, uh, that's what I remember. No, I remember that those conversations from when it was taking place that the computer was just trying to clean everything up. And you don't want it All clean. the time. Yeah. And another thing, and then we'll throw to the clip, that, that I find fascinating, and I think everyone does, about what you've been able to do is with within the genre that you're working in, you've actually... It's not a genre, actually. Uh, I'm sorry, what would it be called? A medium. Animation is a medium. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> and the medium is the message, Marshall McLuhan. Yeah, there, there you okay. go. Okay, now you're centered oh, again. Back yeah. on track. No, I just mean it can do any genre. Mm -hmm. It's that It doesn't choose to. Mostly. I actually didn't... I've learned something. I actually... Uh, Please forgive me. I know you, <laughs> no. you guys would never have made that mistake. But it's really made off. There's. Yeah. I'm so sorry. It's okay. Within it's the right. medium. Yes. That that uh, you're working. You have been able with your narratives and what you're doing, to actually move people in the way that that great literature does and, uh, you know, great art does. And I think that probably 10, 15, 20 years ago, people didn't think that was possible what what you've been able to achieve and also multi-generational you know what I mean like the, the way you're telling a story for example Ratatouille which I should throw to a clip right now because there's a finite amount of time that we have <laughs> Janine Garofalo oh. ladies and gentlemen thank you I hope there's no French people in the audience because they're probably like ow with the 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 actors that you choose when you do these things what is it about their voices that do you, how much control do you have over that? that do, over do you, choosing them? Over over like your your thing like I want Peter O'Toole for this or I, I want Patton Oswalt. Well, for obviously this. you're limited by how interested people are in being on your project, but I've been really lucky. Yeah, because people don't want to work. With well, you, no, I'm basically. saying some people. Well, Peter O'Toole, for example, said, oh, I don't know, I don't really do animation. Ten years, fifteen years ago, I did some sort of nutcracker thing, but uh, as if it were like a piece of lint that he did nutcracker. There was something like that, and so I had to kind of woo him a little bit and say, "No, you're going to love it. It's a, it's a weird part. It's, it's you know, uh, he really dominates the film when he's in it, and I think you'd have fun." And and he kind of came around to it, and then he ended up having a great time. But but some people. Uh, I think some people, um, actors, think it's going to be super easy. Like, come in, just bang out a few lines. You don't have any marks to hit. You, you can have a bad night, and nobody's going to know, unless your voice is ragged. Uh, and they think it's going to be easy. And, and it's not easy. It's hard. And you, part of the, what makes it hard is that you, your job, in some way, is to inspire an animator to... to what takes an actor five seconds to say may take an animator three weeks to animate if it's really difficult. And they are going to listen to this a thousand times, and they want all the nuances. They want to hear it all so that they can come up with um, you know, uh, physical stuff that is as interesting, hopefully, as the, as the voice. And so uh, it's actually a lot of work. And, and I remember Patton going, God, I'm like, at the end of the day, I'm dead. You know, because he's having to put himself 
in a situation where you're, you're thinking of everything because you're in a little booth, you know, mm -hmm. and um, they have to kind of bring it in a, in a way that's a little different. Right. And then with an accent where you feel like you're failing, that makes it even worse. Yeah. I actually didn't know I was supposed to do an accent at first, and neither did Will Arnett. And we coincidentally were staying in the same hotel. And he's like, did you know you were supposed to be? And I was like, no. He didn't know he was supposed to be German either when he got there. And then yeah, he, he was we both had to quickly pretend we knew uh, uh, yeah. immediately. And then I started just watching international CNN to, to do that. <laughs> and I can remember a friend of mine at the time when I would run my attempt at the accent past him, he would go, is that how you're going to do it? Which yeah, would, it's a great which, was, it, which is really yeah. helpful. Yeah. But um, <laughs> Well, I remember you used to, uh, like, if I, if I complimented her after she did something, she just hated it. It did something. It made her just implode or something like that. She just didn't trust it. So very quickly, I had to learn, like, I'd go, that really sucked. And, yes. she, and she'd go, thank you. Uh, and go right on to the next, you because know. Because if you, if, when somebody, I feel like when somebody compliments me, I can only disappoint them after that. So I... Does, does, so I'm sure I, I said she sucked way, a lot, and then you know that for really me, was helpful. That was the I, ultimate I compliment, it. you know, because uh, it was. It was great. I liked it when uh, when you did that, and I hope that you continue to do it. <laughs> um, you know, if you were to ever hire me again, which would be great. <laughs> You're listening to Tribeca Film Festival live from WNYC. Coming up after the break, more from Brad Bird and Janine Garofalo. Um, now, this next clip we're going to go to, I have actually lots of questions about, which is Mission Impossible Ghost okay. Protocol. And I know that, I believe that you were trying to do a film, an adaptation of, of, of a novel at the time that was not coming together, and then this came along. Yeah, it, it was just a really ambitious, very um, uh, uh, incredibly rich period in history. It was called 1906, and it, it, uh, it, it is a... Uh, project that takes place in San Francisco right before the earthquake. And at that moment in time, San Francisco was an unbelievable, uh, fascinating place, kind of caught between the 20th century and the uh, uh, 19th. And, and, and uh, it still had uh, gas lights and electric lights. Um, there were horses and cars. There was the cinema. And they were still... Um, Shanghaiing people from bars. I mean, dropping them, getting them, uh, put, slipping something in their drink. They actually had trap doors in bars, and they would drop them through, and thugs would beat you up, and you would be on a, a boat to Shanghai. And there were people in the legislature who made money from knocking people out and selling them their services to boats where if you didn't work, they'd throw you overboard. So it's the Wild West and the 20th century uh, at the same time, and all of there was corruption, and it, it was beautiful, and and all this crazy stuff was happening. So the the project it was just super rich, but I couldn't find a way to corral the story into a movie sized box. It always sprawled out this way and that, and after a while, I I went. It's been too long. I I gotta. I can't have the, the rest of my career be he worked on 1906, mm -hmm. you know. So I, I need to do a movie, and, and this was the one that came along that was, seemed really fun and, and a good opportunity. I'm still interested in doing 1906, by the way. Well, why not, why not as a miniseries or as a six-part? Uh, you know, there are, uh, there are many uh, advantages to that, and, but there, uh, I love the big screen, too. Um, and I think the earthquake is better suited to the big screen 
So, but there might be a, a, a way to do this. So, uh, we're, let's talk about. Let's. That's, we'll uh, put our heads together for okay. that one. <laughs> um, right now, ladies and gentlemen, a movie you may or may not have heard of: Mission Impossible: Ghost Protocol. <laughs> so that's a very strange sequence to show because it's very quiet, but... Uh, Why is that gentleman so rattled by plumbing issues in the Kremlin? Uh, is it, is it that big a deal to hear a I leaky think, faucet in the Kremlin? I don't think uh, a lot goes on in that hallway. Well, you, you know, yeah. it is Russia. I feel like... <laughs> plumbing is an issue. Plum, it, it just seems like it wouldn't be that unusual to hear <laughs> Well, in the script, they had a duck quack, so... Well, that would make no sense. <laughs> that would make zero which brings sense. It, which is a perfect gateway to what I would like to discuss. Okay. Now, in, when you are asked to direct something like this, which is actually bigger than all of us, like a franchise with Tom Cruise, as the director, you must have a, the same amount of passion, vision that you have for your projects, but there, you must be in some way hindered. From well, you're, you from know that your, your, your slot is to fit in with the other Mission Impossible films that have been made. But one of the things that attracted me to Mission over the other things I was being offered was that um, it was part of the, the series to not have one style. That the, the Brian De Palma mission looks different from the John Woo mission, which looks different than the JJ mission. And, and the fact that it was willing to accommodate uh, individual style was what was interesting to me. And they, and they were very open about saying, if you have anything that you'd wanted to do in a spy movie, you know, we're wide open to it. And I had like six things that I wanted to do in a spy movie, and I got to do five of them. And they didn't mm -hmm. keep me from doing the sixth one. It's that the story didn't allow an opportunity for it. But I got to get them all in there. And, and so it was fun in that sense that we had a skeleton that we were, you know, kind of, fixed too, but within that we can improvise and change things a lot. Wow, that surprised me, because I, I was thinking it's got to be like a, the art of war. Uh, well, it is you want to, with the rules of engagement of how someone like you is going to, to, to work from the top of your intelligence, as you always do, within the confines of a huge commercial venture. Right. And tons of other voices involved in it. Well, but, but I had, I had Tom and I had JJ, and both of them were interested in, in me doing my own thing. So I was kind of protected in a way, and mm -hmm. I was supported when I wanted to do something different. You know, it wasn't like I was against the world. You know, I had those guys kind of pro providing a little dome of protection. Well, then why didn't you feed them? Why were they so thin? <laughs> Did you notice Simon Pegg and Tom Cruise were oh, incredibly... Man, Thin. Craft service must have been awful on, uh, <laughs> on Ghost Protocol. Actually, they had to, I mean, you know, those things are like Olympic events. And, mm -hmm. and Tom especially, because his stuff is so physical, trains for each stunt so that he is peaking for what that particular stunt needs on that particular day. I mean, he takes it really seriously, and that's why he can do things like climb the Burj Khalifa and, and uh, um, you know, uh, do it and look effortless at, about it. Is he, he takes it really seriously. Thank you, LRH. <laughs> yeah, very inside reference. Not really, that documentary. Yeah. <laughs> Woo! Going clear. We could talk about that all day. You know, yeah. 
That'll have Johnny, to be for sir. another film festival. Yes. <laughs> but uh, I, when, before we throw to the, the last clip, uh, I was thinking about... One of the reasons I wanted... Can I interrupt for a second? Uh, one of the reasons I wanted to... <laughs> yes. Just one of the reasons I wanted to put that clip in is, is because it's kind of... It was a little more like a silent comedy in a way. Mm -hmm. And... and uh, one of the things that I responded to with Tom when I first met him was we talked about movie history, what we loved, and I mentioned Harold Lloyd, and he knew all of Harold Lloyd's films, and I and so I could do that kind of short stroke with him, mm -hmm. and he'd know what I was talking about. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I'm sorry. No, no, no. That's and actually he can be very funny. He that can. Tom Cruise can can uh, surprise surprise you with yeah. that. Actually, Tropic how, Thunder, how funny really, yeah. he is. Yeah. And actually, I, Tropic Thunder, I wouldn't put in that in that oh, yeah? category only because I felt that was a little over the top. It no is offense, over the top. LRH. The whole, the whole film. Uh, is over but the top. I, I, but that, but I feel like when he's subtle funny, he's. Yeah, really well, he funny. did funny stuff in, in this film. Like when, when he's supposed to go climbing out the window, he has this look on his face, you know, that we discussed, you know, of, of him, like, I don't want to do this. Mm -hmm. Is there any other way other than doing this? And people tend to look at Simon in those scenes, but Tom is actually really funny, mm -hmm. too. Anyway, go ahead. No, 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 that's good. What is the toll it takes on a project like that as a director? It must be... And an unbelievably mentally and physically. Well, it was thing. it was a rough one to go into as my first live action film because it's like you know being thrown in the deep end of a very uh, shark infested pool in terms of um, how difficult uh, the set pieces were. They were big and they were complicated, and you had to get a lot of mo moving parts to fit together. But like I said, uh, one of the things that attracted me to the project was uh, a chance to work with Tom and, and a chance to work with JJ, and and they were both could not have been more uh, supportive. So mm -hmm. it, was, it was fun. It was hard, but it was fun. And do you, do you feel you would want to pursue more live action stuff, or is your heart mostly? Um, well, my next film is live action, so. No, no, no. I mean, uh, in, in that type of, like, the big budget spy, spy type yeah. thing. Um, yeah, sure, if it's interesting. Um, yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, they're hard, but what's fun is it's big canvas stuff, mm -hmm. and you get to, you get to, if you have a crazy big idea, you have the resources to make it happen. Mm -hmm. It's not to say it, it's easy, but you can do it on a grand scale that, you know, when you see it on a giant screen, it, it really, you know, that's fun. And what kind of control do you have once it's done in post-production? Do you lose control in the edit room or anything? No, no. I mean, sometimes you have to uh, bark a little to get people to step back because people fret when, mm -hmm. when the amount of money gets uh, right. that high. But... Um, no, I've gotten to make the film so far. Uh. Not glass. Not. <laughs> yes. So far, so good. Yeah, I think you're doing okay. Uh, <laughs> all right, so, Jean Vieve, is it time to throw to Tamari, Tamara Land? Yeah, yeah. Tama Tamara. 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 They had it spelled, I mean, I know it's called Tomorrow, but they spelled it Tamara Land. And then I thought, oh, am I saying it wrong? But um, it, it in, was a typo. in New Zealand, that's what it's called. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I don't know why. I love New Zealand. It's <laughs> lovely. Any hoozle. Let's look at Tomorrowland. Anyway. The girls love it, don't they? Girls love it. When uh, when the kids are eternal optimists, and yet it didn't work. Where's the jetpack? 
I know. Where is the jetpack? I mean, I hate to rain on your parade, but we don't have jetpacks. Uh, come May 22nd, you might. <laughs> but will we? <laughs> no, I think I am fascinated by the 1964 World's Fair. I've seen every documentary, PBS periodically. To, I am Me too. fascinated by that period about the, the, um, the whole Tomorrowland thing. Because, uh, as you know, they run those documentaries about that World's Fair. Right. So were you shooting and actually, in, is it Flushing Meadows? Um, no, actually, we, we did it with special effects and redressed something in mm -hmm. Vancouver. But um, Vancouver, that's where it's all happening. It's <laughs> all happening um, in Vancouver. But, uh, you know, it kind of came out of these conversations I had with Damon Lindelof, who produced it and co-wrote the script with me and had the original idea. Um, that we, we started saying, you know, what happened to the future that when we were kids, uh, the future seemed always to be this bright, better thing. And yet some, and the world was still a dark place back then. There were a lot of bad things happening everywhere. Mm -hmm. But there was this optimism about the future. And we started going, why did that disappear? Because if you ask uh, people now, generally, the point of view is that the future is going to stink and that it's not going to be good and we're probably doomed and everybody's kind of resigned to it. And we just kind of went, why is that? What changed? I mean, the world has still got problems, but it had them back then. And why did the future change? Well, I think climate, climate change has nothing to do with it. But no, but, but what I'm saying oh, is we can... But, but we had the atomic bomb. <laughs> no, I'm just saying there were millions of bad things back then. No, I too. agree with you. But, our, with but you. our attitude towards those things was we can figure it out. And that attitude is gone. And yet we're still as in control of our future as we've ever been. It's just that we have to take the I reins. I actually would disagree with you. There is, a, as much as there's cynicism, there is a ton of optimism, a ton of people finding ways to, to hopefully reset what is the future. I agree with that, but it's not the zeitgeist. The zeitgeist is doom and gloom, apocalypse cells. If you try to present a, a rosy vision of the future, you're considered quaint and naive. And that's not to say that it won't be a huge struggle to get there, but, but I feel like there's been sort of a throwing in of the towel, and I, I don't agree with it. Well, there is. Uh, I, it depends on uh, you know. In the political realm, there's the myth of the bright future that is sold to certain people, and then there's because they don't want to hear about realities. That, of course. Because you have to do things to change things. Exactly. But, um, but that's the point. You have to do things to change things. Right. And people have have. Um, admittedly, there are lots of people working on making the world a better place. One of them is Elon Musk, who is pushing, gave away all of his patents to Tesla because he mm -hmm. wants Detroit mm -hmm. to make electric cars. Um, but, and I think that's great, but I'm just saying that's not the general direction. People are sold that the future is going to be worse uh, than, than, than their parents. And um, I feel, feel like there's a resignation to it, and I don't think there should be a resignation. Well, like I said, I think it's half and half. I think that there is... As much as there is the cynicism, the fear, there is so many people trying to find new ways to live and new ways to, to, to bring a better future if, if we can And have our film one. is in support of those people. I can tell that just by the amount of, of, of discussion of, of the optimism this can work in the face of his angry dad. <laughs> yeah. Who says it can't work. Yeah. Who is also, he, how he made it out of Bonton. You see that documentary, Two Blood? Uh, 
that documentary, True Blood, on HBO. A lot of problems in Bonton. That guy was uh, Andy Belfleur. Um, <laughs> maybe that's his father. Yeah. Something. See, there's but probably 19, some sort of tie-in. But 1964 also is an interesting year. Yeah. Uh, really? Not just because of uh, the Beatles and Janine Garofalo was born. Um, but there was something, it, it, so so much was going on at 64. Yes, absolutely. And um, it's almost like it was the perfect time to have that particular World's Fair. Yeah, it was. And, and you know, where have World's Fairs gone? They, they were kind of, in a way, uh, uh, an Olympics for um, ideas of the future. Well, um, it's because they, they were brought to you. Now people have access where they didn't uh, have access, and it was an event to go see what, you could see right. the future was going to be like. But I, felt, I feel like it's dispersed because of that in some mm -hmm. way. And, and I love the fact that the internet makes those things available to us, but it also makes a lot of garbage available to us, too. Mm -hmm. And you have to go through and pick and choose. Whereas the World's Fairs generally were a place where ideas kind of swam upstream. And you got to see glimpses of the future that were positive and, right. and you know. Unfortunately, for the cities that host them, they tend to lose money on them. Yeah. That's what the documentary said. Anyway. <laughs> um, Genevieve, which part are we at now? Before we do the audience. I want you to know I had copious notes and stuff, and then I got embarrassed about uh, not only my penmanship, which is horrible, but um, I, um, I'm embarrassed to ask these questions, but... The, your social consciousness that you have as a person, as a human, and as your optimism, do you think that that's part of also when you grew up, when you were a teenager, uh, the time that you were, does that inform the work that you're doing now? I think to some extent, you know, and I'm probably only aware of half the ways that it is, but, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, it's really hard to look at your own stuff and... And, and try to analyze it with any kind of objectivity. You don't. You know, you have to kind of rely on other people to, you know, see what things keep popping up again. Because when you're doing it, you're just going, well, that would be cool. Oh, that would be cool. Why don't we do that? You know, and then uh, it tends to be whatever it is. But, yeah, I think, I think the stories that, you know, I love popcorn movies as much as any kind of movie. And I truly, genuinely love them. Um, but I like when there's a little more to chew on. Right. And, and um, I think that I got interested in movies in the 70s. Uh, when, you know, and I was a kid, but I was becoming aware of what um, the language of movies in the 70s when people, there was a really wide range mm -hmm. of films being made. I mean, you know, you would have Annie Hall up against Star Wars for Best Picture. And... and um, you know, there, it just was a really interesting time in cinema. Mm -hmm. And I felt like a lot of those films could dazzle you and, and, and entertain the hell out of you, but you come out of the theater and you're still thinking about them. Right. And I like that. I think that's great. That's what, when, when I was talking earlier about the narratives and the, and the way that you're, what you're doing actually can move people, I don't know that there would have been a lot of people like I said, 25 years ago or so, that would have thought that could be achieved, the stories that you tell, the way that you tell them, mm. uh, within your medium. <laughs> Very carefully done. <laughs> Thank you. Um, uh. where, do you, where do you want to push it to? What is it, 
And if you, if you were to adapt 1906, would you consider adapting it uh, not live action? <laughs> I, I, I mean, that's insane. Um, that's not the way I see it. It's weird because um, I see certain ideas certain ways. And certainly the argument, when I was first starting in animation, the old, some of the old guys, not the best old guys, the more hacky old guys would say, if you can do it in live action, don't do it in animation, which I always thought was idiotic because mm -hmm. it was dooming animation to being obsolete because right. live action was capable of doing more every year. And now, you know, they've made pigs talk, you know, they've, they do E.T., they can do Lord of the Rings, they can do anything now. And animation to me is still as relevant as it's ever been. That's never been the reason to do animation is to do what live action can't do. It's to... Uh, take ideas that can benefit from having the essence of them turned up. And that's mm -hmm. what animation is. It's like a good caricature of W.C. Fields looks more like W.C. Fields than W.C. Fields right. does. And that's what good animation does. Um, so uh, there are certain ideas, like Incredibles could have been done as a live-action film, but I saw it as an animated film. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, Ratatouille could have been done with a little CG rat that, that you know, uh, and it had been done as a live action film, but I don't see that the same way. And and I see 1906 as a live action film. And Tomorrowland could have been done as an animated film, but I see it as a live action right. film. So I, I love both mediums, and I just have certain ways that I'd love to tell certain stories. And and you know, so far it's worked out. So far so good, but we're waiting on the jetpacks. Anyway, yeah, going to the Q and A of the audience. Yes. There will be people handing mics out if you have questions. And you can take them questions. home. <laughs> yes, these yeah. are for you. These are complimentary yeah. courtesy of the Tribeca Film, Festival. Film yeah. Festival. Put in a good word. You're listening to Tribeca Film Festival Live from WNYC. Coming up after the break, more from Brad Bird and Janine Garofalo. Uh, oh, there's, oh, am I supposed to, there's hands up. Uh, sure, you. <laughs> Hey, man. Um, I just wanted to say, uh, I'm, I was watching uh, The Iron Giant and uh, The Incredibles recently, and one thing that I'm always amazed at is just how well these animated films convey light so well to, to tell and express mood. And uh, one thing that I just wanted to know, uh, moving into Ghost Protocol and uh, Tomorrowland, what it was like working with, like, uh, Claudio and uh, Bob Robert versus, Elswick, yeah, yeah. versus a team of animators to capture and convey light. Um, well, I think, you're, uh, I think you're having a lot of the same conversations because you're still trying to sell a scene and put it over. And, and um, uh, you know, uh, our, uh, when we do a, a CG film, um, unlike a hand-drawn film, um, you're, you're dealing with uh, people who are in charge of uh, photography. And on Ratatouille, we had Sharon Callahan, who'd done several Pixar films and is brilliant. Um, and she knew all these cinematographers. She knew all the work of them. So I could say, this shot is kind of like, um, you know, uh, it's like Robert Richardson. And she'd go, I know what you mean, like the top light? And I'd go, yeah, exactly. And, she'd, and so we could use that shorthand of knowing what certain cinematographers did as shorthand for, like, that's how to approach this, this shot. Um, so it's really the same stuff. It's just the tools are a little different. Yeah. Uh, uh, you? <laughs> Hello. Um, 
So now that we've clarified the difference between medium and genre, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, you've, you've done uh, family films, you've done a spy film, now you've done Tomorrowland, which we'll find out what it is. But are there any... Who knows what it is, really? <laughs> I don't know. What are, are, are there other genres that you would like to try your hand at as you a bet. filmmaker in either? Uh, yeah, I, I would love to do a Western. I'd love to do a musical. I'd love to do a lot of different things. Um, what you are trying to figure out is what you would do that is different than what's been done and, and which uh, films you're inspired by and which ones you want to stay away from. Like I have certain Westerns that I love and certain Westerns that I'm like, hmm. You know, and uh, so it's, you know, the ones that stick are the ones that ultimately influence you. Uh, let's go to the back with the red cap. I feel horrible. Jeez, it's like the lottery. <laughs> I love and the not way the you good would, one either. Shirley Jackson's you, one. <laughs> not the good lottery. I love when you pick someone, you go, you? <laughs> yeah. I don't want to offend anyone. Anyway, the gentleman in the red cap. No, I was just curious uh, what that last thing that you didn't get to put in Ghost Protocol was with the, the spy. Uh, what the five things were? Yeah. Oh, well, the no, no, just thing. the last one. That oh, the, the, oh yeah, well, then I'm giving up the idea. I, I know. <laughs> I don't want to do that because idea, uh, ideas find their way into other films. There, I was doing uh, a failed project that I tried to do for years was an uh, animated version of The Spirit, Will Eisner's comic strip. And there was a gag in The Spirit that I did where The Spirit is on the phone and he keeps hanging it up and it keeps falling off. And finally he's like slamming it down multiple times. And that showed up in Iron Giant. The opportunity to do that showed up in Iron Giant with Kent Mansley. So, uh, so ideas get find their ways into other films. And so I don't want to give up the idea because it might, it might go into another film. You? Yeah. Mm. Particularly where animation is concerned. Oh, uh, well, television has its own challenges, as uh, you are very aware. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's, you have to produce it. If you're doing a show, you have to produce it very quickly. And the, the thing that, the image that kept popping up with me when I was working, and I worked on eight seasons of The Simpsons as a consultant. I, wasn't, I was there probably two days out of every week, uh, sometimes three. Um, but... Um, uh, it, it's kind of like that, that thing of I Love Lucy where she has the chocolates mm -hmm. and she has to and she kind of keeps shoving more chocolates down because she can't keep up with them. Um, if you slow down on television you will get eaten alive. And there were episodes of The Simpsons I learned a hell of a lot from being on that show because I saw episodes that were deeply in trouble up to two weeks before they were going to air. And these are things that take six months to go through the whole process from the beginning of the writing to the end of the shooting color. And they would be almost done and things wouldn't work. And then somebody would make a genius move of re-editing something or revoicing one part and suddenly they would work beautifully. And so it was like storytelling camp. And because the Simpsons scripts, as googly-eyed as everybody is and crazy looking, 
The, the scripts are actually very sophisticated and would have an A story and a B story and sometimes a C story and keep things popping. In 22 minutes, they would do like 40 minutes worth of material. And just so I learned a lot from being on that. Um, but uh, television forces you to make decisions quickly. And that has served me very well in film because um, in, with Iron Giant, we had a, a limited budget and a, and a shortened schedule compared to DreamWorks or Disney films. And um, with uh, Incredibles, we had this great studio and a big budget and support, but we wanted to make a film that was three times bigger than any one they had done without it costing any more money. So all the TV stuff really came was handy because you cannot linger over a decision. You have to just make it and move on in uh, TV. And that has been great for me in, in movies. Will you start picking the people? Will I start what? Picking the people. Oh, OK. Yeah, I'll be ruthless. You, no, never. <laughs> you know, yeah. Hi, you. Yes. Um, OK, hello. Um, I'm sorry about my English. I am from Brazil. Okay, I'm sorry, about, I'm sorry about my English, too, so we're even. Um, okay, it's a curious um, answer in how your process to collect and select your insights and ideas, because obviously you have a lot of elements to make incredible narratives, and how your process? Um, it's different for each film. Um, they're highly individual, and they happen in, in very different ways. There's a film that I wanted to make, uh, uh, and still want to make, uh, called Ray Gunn. Uh, uh, and uh, that idea happened because I was listening to the radio, and there was this music, and it sounded like Peter Gunn. It was dun 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 And so I go, this is Peter Gunn, and then it goes, And I go, that's not Peter Gunn. It what was is that? Planet Claire by Planet the Planet Claire by B-52s. Um, <laughs> exactly. But I went, that's not Peter Gunn. That's Ray Gunn. And then I went, what would Ray Gunn be? And I, and I just started to ask myself all these questions. And then you, you come up with answers that entertain you. And that, then you have a story. So that, in that instance, it was inspired by a song. But no two happen alike. Oh, okay. Yes. The one with the Pixar cap. Bases are loaded. So I have a physics question for you. Uh-oh. Um, I'm also, liable to flunk. Yeah, right. Uh, also I'll answer it pre-advanced. I don't know. You don't know? <laughs> okay. Moving on to the next question. Question about creating genuine peril. Uh -huh. Because uh, I've read that Walt Disney wasn't afraid of scaring children. No, that's and exactly I... right. And it's what that people, a lot of people get wrong about Disney. Among the piles of things that people get wrong about Disney. Um, yes, uh, in fact, they had to reupholster uh, the seats in, in a very large uh, movie palace in New York because little kids were peeing on the seats when the witch came on in Snow White. Um, um, they had to reupholster the, after about, you know, a month, they had to, yeah, because the pee was eating into the, well, we don't need <laughs> Anyway, uh, I think that I always admired that about uh, Walt-era films, is that they were not afraid to be really scary. And my favorite um, uh, Disney film of, uh, Walt Disney film, 
was Pinocchio, which is I still find scary, and and uh, I love that about it that it was willing to be dark and and you know go there. You know the scene where they transform into donkeys, you know, was done in a way that still scares the crap out of me, and I I think that's great. In fact, I think an animated you, you talk about what animation should do. Animation should do a balls out horror movie, absolutely. And you know uh, that's what everybody thought Black Cauldron was going to be, and then it just was bad on 400 different levels, but <laughs> and that's for another film festival. My physics question really Oh, no, me. no, uh, no. You're limited to one uh, question and no physics. Well, that's, I'm being brutal. It's time to your... You. Uh, actually, we should... Uh, I feel like we're staying front too, row. too front. Okay, well, you have an opinion. Take well, it well, over. Well, now you, you go, and then and and we need yours. to be more fair next one yours. and go back. Next one's yours. Okay. Okay, uh, yes. So you've mentioned finding literature that you enjoy and then talking about also uh, animation and live action. Have you ever considered doing a movie where it's combining both based on so a story that people love, like The Phantom Tollbooth or something along those lines? Uh, I, I have a movie that combines them, but it's not the... Phantom toll booth kind of thing where two different realities that you cut back and forth between. I don't know. Those kind of work. I mean, there's been a lot of bad ones like that, like uh, Page Master and stuff like that, you know. Um, I don't know. Maybe. I have one that combines them, but combines them in a different kind of way. But yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, those mediums can play well with each other, sure. Janine. Okay, in the back, and also we probably shouldn't wait for mics because then you can get more questions in, but you're going to have to project as if you're in the theater. <laughs> Sir, right there. Yes, direct, direct you. <laughs> right there. In Ratatouille, you seem to be influenced by, by cinematography. You had this rock focus. In, in your animation work, has that influenced your, your direction of acting? Um, I see it all as kind of the same thing. You're still working with the same language. Um, some people like to do really deep focus, and some films like Citizen Kane have really benefited from it. But for me, focus is a, another way to direct the eye. And um, I, I like the fact uh, uh, that uh, CG animation, you can mimic a real lens. Um, part of what you're talking about in Ratatouille was I wanted it to feel small. One, one, uh, in other words, that you were... It's, it's subtle, but there's a way to do it where it seems enormous and like you're small, and there's a, way, uh, uh, there's a way to seem like you're small, and there's a way to make the room just seem enormous. And they're not the same thing. And I wanted it to seem like we were small. And one thing that I noticed is when you photograph things in, in, with real lenses, when they're small, the focal length becomes very short. So if you try to get close to a rat's face, um, his nose might be in focus, but his eyes won't be in focus because they're small. And so I said, I want the camera to mimic uh, being small. And so the, the focal length gets very short when you're close to Remy. And it gets longer when you're with the real people. And that is something the computer does not, again, did not want to do. It wants to do deep focus. And everybody was like, well, you don't want deep focus? You can see everything. Why don't you want that? I said, because I don't feel small. You know, I want to feel tiny. I want to feel like we have a little tiny rat cam 
and with a little tiny rat cinematographer, and he's, you know, and, and for all those shots, I want them shot by the union rat <laughs> cinematographer, you know. So anyway. Okay, we're only allowed to have one more. Uh, uh. This is worth the price of admission right here. Yeah. I'm so sorry, we won't get that. <laughs> you thank suck. You. I know. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. Okay. Um, Brad, I was very moved by when you were sharing before about um, the future, how, as we were kids, was promised beautiful, and now how so much of media is being shown that apocalyptic here, apocalypse there. What do you feel should be the, um, as a storyteller, as, a, as someone who's storyteller, like an ancient storyteller, like a shaman, or like that, how we should, as um, overall in, in media, should we be, be promoting more of this kind of, to influence people's consciousness and be like a different level of that? Yeah, I, I, uh, I shy away from getting too, um, like prescribing, well, this is what the world needs right now versus through the media. But uh, I do believe storytelling is powerful and that um, the stories we tell each other in however form, whatever form, um, uh, reflect what's going on in our minds. And, and they, I'm not saying that they all have to be uplifting stories. So some of my favorite stories are, have sad endings or, or dark endings. And uh, it's just that the stories that I'm drawn to are a little more um, glass half full. Uh, and uh, uh, I, that's probably just more who I am. I, I am cynical in a way, but it's about that deep. Uh, if you go scratch it a little bit underneath, I'm an optimist. Can we say you're jet-packy? I'm kind of jet-packy. Jet with a longer but, range, though. But, but that, that's more like, he, oh, Brad Bird, he's jet-packy. Yeah. You know, he believes we're actually going to have one soon. Uh, I don't believe. Well, we I like do that have about them. You. They're just not. They just don't long work. Range. They yeah. don't work the way that we were promised. That's right. Damn um, it. Now, in summation, what have we learned uh, today? What have we learned today? It's good to have your parents be connected with someone at Disney. <laughs> My parents were connected that, to somebody who was connected with somebody who was. Come on, and, I'm more of the people. And uh, and then also to be talented. Yeah. Uh, talented. Yeah. That helps too. Um, I'm sorry we couldn't get to all your questions, but I'm sure Brad Woman, I'm going to be handing out his phone number. Um, and just to ring him up on his cell. Uh, and, right? You don't mind. Um, right? Or you can people. stalk Janine. Either one works. Yeah. But I think, I think they have more questions for you, and I feel like you know, you're such an optimist. Uh, you're, you're such an Airbnb type of guy <laughs> in the sharing economy. But anyway, thank you all so much for coming. This is Tribeca Film Festival Live from WNYC. On the next episode, Christian Slater talks about leading an army of hackers against an Illuminati-like group of bad guys in the USA Network's new show, Mr. Robot. 